we did an overland and, and flying journey across the Sahara Desert, which had never been done before. Uh, a 46 day mission, uh, you know, 10,000 kilometer journey that was truly spectacular in, it, in its scope and its uh, outlook and projection and, uh, you know, challenge and, and difficulty and included some uh, incredible, uh, difficult, tough leadership challenges, incidentally, as well as uh, incidentally being the chief pilot. So I had uh, quite a lot on my plate. Those who are living a life of freedom have optimized themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want, when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm gonna bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also gonna give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of The Freedom Project. Life either happens to you or for you. In Neil Lawton's case, he chose the latter. I say chose because what could have been setbacks were turned into the events which made him into the man he is today. That is our constant choice. The ability to lean into life as the adventure it is. Not something to be shied away from or resisted, but embraced. It's that willingness to lean into and engage with our apparent mishaps that transform them from adversity into teaching moments. Neil has applied this approach to the two areas which we love learning about on the Freedom Project podcast, adventure and business, and through these, he has created freedom. Neil Lawton is a successful business entrepreneur, multiple Guinness World Record-breaking adventurer, former Royal Marines Commando, helicopter pilot, and Special Forces officer. During a varied business career, he founded companies in property development, construction, commercial interiors and office furniture which were bought by FTSE 100 in 2011. Since then Neil has focused on helping business leaders become more inspirational and their teams to deliver exceptional performance. He's the CEO of Lawton Co Limited, director of Floating Development Limited, founder of the Penny Farthing Club and vice president of the scientific charity Scientific Exploration Society. And Neil has a passion for travel, sport and adventure. He's organised and led more than 50 expeditions on seven continents by land, sea and air. He summited Mount Everest with Bear Grylls, circumnavigated the UK and Ireland on a jet ski and he piloted the world's first road legal car on a 10,000 kilometre journey from London to Timbuktu and across the Sahara Desert. And you have a ton to learn from this guy. So here is Neil Lawton. Let's start with your choice of question. I've got two stories that I'd like to hear about to begin with. One of them involves your your interest in penny farthings and where that started. And then the other one is, was it your dad sending a helicopter to H, uh, to pick you up to go to HMS Bullock? So Tom, yeah, hi. Um, yeah, so that, that that's probably about it because that's early, early, early days. And, and yeah, let's go for that. Into, it led me into the life that I've led. Okay, absolutely. Then let's explore that. Like, tell me how does that arise? Because that's not everyone's upbringing. I had an amazing experience when I was about 12 years old at school. Uh, my dad was a serving naval officer and he was on uh, commanding a ship called HMS Bulwark, which was a commando carrier, we probably know. Um, he sent a, 
the, one of the Wessex Five helicopters uh, landed in the school playground and I was beckoned on board with two or three of my chums and we spent three days at sea with HMS Bul Bulwark, the Navy, and of course uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, Royal Marine commanders doing their drills and skills up and down helicopters and off on their missions uh, ashore and I was just simply blown away by that experience and not so much the, the Navy being stuck in a tin can but just the the concept of uh, dressing up in camouflage outfits with a rifle slung over your shoulder and, and disappearing off to do a mission and um, yeah that set me on a path of wanting to join uh, the military. What rank does your dad have to be to pull that move? I think he was a commander at the time. He, he, okay. he ended up as a captain, but uh, he was uh, 2IC, second in command of uh, HMS Bulwark at the time. Um, I don't think it would be allowed uh, nowadays, but this was like 1972, 73. So, uh, you know, they got away with all sorts of uh, shenanigans like that and having their sons on board, uh, you know, on a, on a tour. So, uh, yeah, pretty special uh, and rare uh, and exclusive uh, opportunity that I grabbed with both hands. What do you remember about that experience? What was the thing that recaptured your imagination? Well, you know, 12, 13, I think it's a really formative age. And, you know, I look at my kids now at the similar, similar age and they're just searching for a bit of meaning, a bit of uh, identity, and, you know, really a path to proceed into into the big wide uh, adult world. And uh, for me personally, I was pretty shite at uh, academia, struggled at school, basically. And I was looking for something that I could do and try and at least excel at, if that's the right word, or survive uh, or find my path. And when I had that opportunity on that ship, um, you know, it just uh, there was a spark. There was a, a, a realization that uh, something that I really loved the idea of, the concept of, um, and something that was pretty easy to to set as a as a standard, as a goal, as an aspiration, uh, which was essentially to join the Marines, um, was a really good focus for me, and 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 really provided that sort of pathway to uh, what you know became my life and my career. That sounds like the beginnings of adventure. There's, you know, the Pink Floyd line, I always come back to it about the caught a glimpse out of the corner of my eye, I look to turn, but it's gone. There's this, this idea you kind of capture this glimpse of adventure and it seems to resonate with you. Like, I, I don't know about you, but that's what I certainly get. Yeah, no, I think if you choose a, a life in the military, certainly you're going to have a, a fair dose of adventure thrown in. Obviously, there's a sort of a specific role and responsibilities of being uh, in the military, uh, as you above all people know, and um, but you know that that comes with uh, some other great opportunities. You know, joining a a, a different sort of family, um, having challenges thrown at you, personal and professional, uh, and obviously, uh, you, you know, following some rules and regulations at the same time. But giving Sometimes. you you know really good runway, a pathway to to follow. Um, at least for me, the first phase of my adult career, um, you know, was was nicely mapped out. Well, at least that's what I thought at the time. Yeah. So let's go through a little bit of your history. You joined the Marines and then what happened and how old are you when you joined as well? 
was 19. Um, so I was, I was keen from the age of 12, 13 of that experience. And I had uh, my sights set on a full career in, in the Marines. I managed to pass all the, all the entry uh, tests, joined uh, Limpston, um, and appeared to be doing reasonably well. But unfortunately, my dad then contracted cancer and was battling uh, throat cancer. And it was a really tough time. And, you know, being quite sort of formative age, it, it really hit me when, uh, you know, he eventually succumbed to the disease and, and, and died right kind of in the middle of, uh, you know, towards the end of my training, really. And it just uh, it, it knocked me off my perch, if I'm honest. Uh, I lost a lot of concentration, self-esteem, confidence, and that kind of that kind of showed. And uh, unfortunately, um, I got my green beret, but um, unfortunately, they didn't. I wasn't deemed fit enough to to lead men, uh, you know, uh, abroad. So yeah, my my commission was terminated. Okay, that must have been a hugely unsettling experience to go from having a very clear sight of especially with the military you've got your career laid out in front of you and you have a very clear hierarchy and progression for you and there's a there's something compelling about that end goal and i'm guessing reading between the lines as well that there was a obviously your dad being a, a role model in some degree like there's some sort of inspiration i'm going to guess you can tell me if i'm wrong um but it must have been a very unsettling time for you with all that going on yeah you're spot on it was a very difficult time you know I'd, for six or seven years i'd set my sights and worked really hard to get myself into a position uh to you know follow a, a path that i had in my mind mapped out and of course then the rug gets pulled um you know, I can't blame um, the situation on anybody. It was just one of those things. And, um, you know, you've got to be completely on your game, as you know, um, leading soldiers, Marines, uh, whatever. So my head wasn't in the right place at that moment. And, you know, they didn't have really much time uh, to wait for me. So, you know, that was it. I had to pack my bags, um, sell on my, my blues and uh, sword and everything else to... Uh, to uh, the next uh, batch and uh, I hightailed it to London to start my commercial career. But, what did that um, feel like, that that end in that transition? Yeah, it was tough. Um, you know, I had a, few, a few hundred quid in, you know, to my name, um, you know, just with, with no real direction at that moment in time, I was just surviving. Um, you know, it was a, a pretty shocking couple of years that followed, um, trying to find my way to earn a living, earn a crust. Uh, I remember, um, you know, responding to an article in the Daily Mail for salespeople, uh, which is about the only thing I felt I was capable of doing, you know, ended up passing a three-week sales training course, joining a slightly roguish door-to-door um, -door office equipment selling a company and operation. Um, and then... Uh, you know, try, knew nobody in London. So, you know, you couldn't flat share with with anybody if you didn't know anybody. So I ended up in um, kind of Brixton uh, YMCA, which is pretty rough. Um, you know, a couple of years doing that, sofa surfing, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the best, but um, needs must and you just got to get on, turn a new leaf, uh, try and find your way. Uh, you know, about a few years later, 
uh, I don't know if you know this, but, um, you know, I still had, uh, you know, some unfinished business in terms of the military, but um, it then became the uh, the 10th anniversary of uh, the Iranian embassy siege, and they were looking for, for new volunteers. So I literally uh, lined up with thousands of other young, hopeful, aspirant um, special forces uh, personnel um, and, you know, had a had a, a brilliant run by this stage i'd uh, you know overcome the emotional uh, turmoil that I'd, I'd been through with with dad's death and um i was more mature I, you know i was in the right place itching to uh, you know to sort of amend the record book so to speak determined and had a little bit of experience of um which way to point a rifle etc and so um uh, past selection and uh, served twelve very happy years with uh, with the regiment and um, the, the territorial version, but uh, it was a, it, it was great to be able to complete, if you like, what I had started age twelve thirteen, uh, and at least feel good about myself and have that um, experience. That's a really nice full circle, um, and it's a really nice representation of the hero's journey of being having a, a huge setback. And that questioning yourself and who do I really think I am? And like sales is a very interesting role to pursue in that because personal experience, you need a lot of confidence and you said your confidence has been knocked. What did that initial phase of sales training teach you? Um, I think uh, to find strategies to, to win. Um, by that, I mean, you know, when you're thrust into an unfamiliar environment, uh, you, you're having to rise to a challenge. Your your back's against the wall. You've got no money. You're living in a in a YMCA in Brixton. You know it doesn't. You know unless you're uh, on the wrong side of the tracks and uh, uh, spending time in Her Majesty's uh, one of Her Majesty's prisons. I think that you don't get much lower if you know what I mean. And so when that happens to you, there's only one way. You've got to fight, or you or or, or you die. Uh, respectively and um i just think uh what it taught me was to to win to find the the techniques to learn the techniques of of uh, you know in business um at my scale it was simply uh cold calling skills and, and making uh getting through the door to get to the decision maker to then do a pitch to win business and it was very simple if you didn't win if you didn't win business you didn't put soup and bread on the table you know it was commission only um what business you brought in you got a slice of the action it was as simple as that so there was no option you had to succeed or you you know you're on uh, you're sleeping on a park bench it was as simple as that yeah so that's it's interesting as well that you said there was only one choice because there are people who end up in that situation who take the other option and they they crumble or they take the easier path or the more familiar path or the, the path that eventually ends up worse for them. What was the the driver? Like, why was that already built, built into you? I think, you know, I'd had a good education. I had good parental uh, stock. Um, DNA was passed on, uh, you know, went to a good school, although I didn't excel at it. Um, I don't think for the majority of people taking the what you call the easy option is is necessarily the right one. And I think, you know, I, I still had pride. I still had, you know, some sort of belief in myself that I could turn it around and make a, you know, 
make something of my my life at, at that point. And so it wasn't about giving up, crumbling, and uh, you, you know so forth. It was it was right. It's time to fight. It's time to get on my bike and uh, and and start cycling in a different direction. There must have been to jump around all over the place. There must be a large amount of carryover between the versatility and the flexibility that you you create for yourself in a sales role and also the I'll get it done in any way and then joining special forces. Yeah. So, so I think, um, you know, selling, as you say, requires confidence. It requires a little bit of cunning and it requires uh, huge amounts of, of hard work and determination to succeed and actually, um, you know, passing selection and, and serving, for a number of years, um, reasonably successfully, hopefully with with uh, you know special forces, exactly the same uh, skill set, and so one bleeds to the other. Um, I would argue, and um, certainly that led, I think, to my passion of of seeking out more adventure and uh, more responsibility in terms of uh, organising, leading uh, expeditions around the world. Mm. And. There's really, if you're thinking about adventure and creativity and also doing difficult, challenging things, nothing speaks to you more than the SAS or SBS, I think, as, as a Brit. Yeah, I suppose so. But I mean, I you know, that's not exclusive. There are plenty of other challenging roles uh, out there. I just think the principle is, you know, when you hit a brick wall, when you have huge disappointment, don't take the easy option. There's always there's always opportunity. There's always uh, hope, and there's there's always a pathway that people can follow. And if if there's nothing else that people take away from this uh, interview is that when you are at rock bottom, you know even even me with you know uh, with, with what I've shared with you thus far, uh, there's always hope, and there's always an opportunity to progress to grow. Uh, to find a, a new way uh, that's satisfying, um, you know, lucrative and all the rest of it, whatever it is that you're looking for. What was the hope for you? What was the thing that you're aiming at? I, I just didn't want to be an embarrassment. I didn't want to uh, be a complete failure. I, I, I still had, um, you know, pride. I had kind of, you know, warped belief in myself. I knew I'd find a find a way. And yeah, I think I have probably. Shame gets a really bad reputation at the moment, but I think it's got such a driver, like, especially when you get to a really low point in your life. It seems like it it can pull pull you out of a bad place. Yeah, yeah, it can be it can be um, devastating to some people, but if um, if you're pretty focused and uh, you have at least a modicum of self confidence um, and some skills and and belief, you put that together with. Uh, a new strategic plan, uh, some help from from others seeking help, and you know, a good modicum of resilience and uh, and focus and uh, determination. Look, I I honestly believe anything is possible. What was selection like for you now? Selection was um, challenging, um, physically and, and mentally. Uh, not so much emotionally. I kind of, I think my time in the Marines had prepared me for the emotional turmoil that is, uh, you know, a selection process, military style. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, you you uh, you couldn't uh, deny the fact that it's physically and uh, mentally quite a demanding uh, 
a course, but um, bar a few little hiccups here and there, um, a few nav errors on the Welsh mountains, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think that's the secret. If you're, if you're actually having fun, um, you know, you're working hard, but you've, you've got good camaraderie with your, your fellow recruits and you can form a little cadre of, of people, you against the system, uh, it really helps. And um, I, I you know, was lucky I, I was fit, um, as fit as I probably had ever been uh, determined, you know, from, from the previous history of, of turning that page and to, to writing, in my mind, the, uh, the situation, the disappointment of previous. And, um, you know, I was having fun. And so uh, it kind of all went, you know, in a bit of a blur and, and uh, you know, all, all, went, all went fine. What moments stand out to you from your time with the SAS? I think just, um, just I, obviously, I can't go into any any details, no. but um, just having a cadre of really good human beings to that you spend time with, you work with, uh, you solve problems with, and you overcome hardship with, that you know will last forever. Those friendships will will never die until we. Uh, we're planted under underground and um you know they're just really special to a certain extent you don't have to it's not just about um you know special forces i get the same uh experiences and same build up of, of close friendships when you do an expedition when you go on a challenging adventure and uh you know those those are kind of the the really rewarding aspects of of putting an expedition expedition together with good people doing something challenging um, and put, putting pitting yourself against that and, and coming really close together with with other uh, people to overcome all the obstacles and challenges that, that that you come across. Were you going on expeditions in parallel with your time is um, in the SAS? Uh, yes, yeah. In fact, um, I mean. To give you a good example, uh, obviously the regiment has a, a rich history of uh, attempting Everest, some successful, others not so. And, uh, you know, I had I had this theory that um, military-sponsored expeditions, typically quite large affairs, were the wrong approach for uh, Mount Everest. And so it was always in my mind to have a bit like, you know, the ethos of special forces. You work in small teams. You know why change? Why change the the format that works? Um, and uh, so, so I chose to my teammates to be uh, special forces personnel in the most part, not all, um, and certainly in the second second attempt, first one being a complete failure due to the worst storm in a hundred years on the mountain. That's another story, um, and you know I just. Um, I chose to go down a, a slightly more private expedition path rather than get the support of the military and uh, sponsorship from, from military funding and stuff. And I, I wanted to be my own boss and make my own decisions without having the, um, the authorities, uh, you know, tell you what to do and how to do it. I can imagine that if you got the kind of, the overarching large rolling machine of the military behind you, there would be all sorts of obligations to meet. So that independent sound like it, it talked to you. Yeah. I think that was just a bit of hindsight because, uh, or, or insight, whatever you call it, because, um, 
you know, that was in the mid nineties when I was doing Everest. And actually a few years later, I was doing some other fun projects in the Himalayas, including uh, the world's highest black tie dinner party charity <laughs> project. And I actually came across a, a, a military funded expedition. I don't think it was special forces, but it, but it was, it, it was the embodiment of what I was uh, fearing would happen to, to me and had seen uh, and it was playing out in front of my very eyes. The, the 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 team was too big. It was too top top heavy in terms of bureaucracy. Uh, there was some you know colonel back at London who was mm -hmm. making decisions on behalf of the team leader who was tearing his hair out, um, and the whole thing imploded and a huge waste of money and opportunity and disappointment for the for the soldiers who were you know, given up three months of their, their lives to attempt this mountain. They didn't even get a chance to, God, you know, go higher than camp one or two. It was appalling. And so, yeah, my fears were, were realised at that moment. And so I think my decision early on to have, you know, uh, military personnel, but in a private capacity, privately funded uh, expedition was the right one. Were you leading that expedition or were you a part of a team? I was leading it, yeah. Just a quick favour to ask, if you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show, it reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love. Okay, what did you learn about leadership in that capacity? Too much for an hour's podcast, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hit me with the highlights. Oh, okay. Um, well, listen, it's it's you know it's like um, it's just an extreme version of uh, everything else in life. As a as a business leader or a, an expedition leader or a military leader, you know you've got to you've got to you know the the principles of leadership. I don't know off the top of my head. You've got to know um, what's the vision. Uh, you know, can you? Um, can you find new ways to, to, to do things? What's the strategy? Who's in your team? How to look after your people? And, uh, you know, what attitude do you bring to the, to the party? In fact, um, all of those things uh, add up to a little acrostic word I, I sometimes use to make sure I've got everything in place. Um, and it's called VISTA. Uh, so VISTA is an acrostic word. You use it and it's uh, vision. What's your vision? Uh, Innovation. How can you bring something new? And I'll, I'll I'll give you a little story of of how that works in a second. What's your strategy? And uh, who's in your team? Um, you know how are they? How, you know, what skills are they are they going to bring? Um, and what's the attitude? What's your attitude to to, to life, uh, to the challenge, to the opportunities, etc. So, Vista is a nice little um, acrostic word that I think uh, meaning a pleasing view and or ambition in the dictionary. But if you get those uh, five things right, vision, innovation, strategy, team, and attitude right, then you're on to a bit of a winner. Anyway, um, one example. Acrostic is word of the day as well, I think, for me. I'm going to keep okay. that and use it again. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, an example of the eye, please. So, well, I mean, you know, th this covers quite a few of the, the, the angles. So, uh, as you'll know, we Brits started the uh, Everest um uh, aspirant climbing thing from about the 1920s with George Mallory and you know there was a there was a methodology of how you climb the mountain right the way through uh, 1953 when Edmund Hillary and Tenzing climbed it to uh, you know more modern uh, 
expeditions. And so you could argue that there wasn't anything much to do in terms of, uh, okay, your vision is there, you want to climb the mountain. Uh, innovation and strategy kind of um, was set for you. Also, you could assume, but but not so. Team, obviously, uh, you know, de depending on the current, you know, who you had with you in your team. And of course, you need a good positive mindset, attitude, optimism, energy, etc. for uh, your attitude. But coming back to innovation and strategy, as I was saying, I think you could you could assume that you follow the crowd, you get advice from your Sherpa teams uh, and so forth. But when I experienced the worst storm in 100 years in 1996, what I realized is that uh, a, a number of things, really, there was a lot of people on the mountain that shouldn't be on the mountain. So you're kind of slightly surrounded with people who perhaps could be uh, uh, better uh, acclimatized, better experienced and, and better talent in terms of skill set. You won't believe it, but there were some people uh, on this mountain, the world's highest, who'd never been on another mountain, uh, which, which is pretty shocking. But anyway, uh, the point is, when the storm hit in 96, uh, generally speaking, uh, the shit hit, hit the fan and the experienced instructors were just as much at risk of dying and in, in fact did die as the punters, so to speak. And so you have to know what you're doing. You have to have relevant experience. Um, and in terms of strategy and innovation, uh, one example would be uh, from camp four, you then go for your summit bid, yeah? Mm -hmm. For about 50 years, the, uh, the strategy uh, was that you would get there kind of five, six o'clock in the evening on the previous night. You'd rest for uh, about six hours in your tent, suck in some oxygen, drink fluids, eat some food, and then you would leave for the summit at midnight. That happened literally for 50 odd years, every team coming in doing that process. And I looked at my experiences in 96, where the storm hit the mountain, the, the winds invariably get, uh, you know, more ferocious after lunch, and people were pushing the boundary, the limits of the turnaround time from uh, lunchtime to eventually uh, three, four o'clock in the afternoon, too late. And so I simply said, um, 50 years of, of tradition, of uh, regular strategy means nothing. You've got to think differently, bring some innovation to it. So I said to my team, we're going to leave at nine o'clock, which means a couple of things. You leave a little bit earlier, you're going to spend a little bit more in the dark and in, in the cold, but critically, you're going to summit the mountain at breakfast time leaving you plenty of time uh, with, a, with a weather window to get off the mountain safely. And uh, that work, that strategy, that little bit of tweaking of the innovation, uh, the, the 50 years of tradition, um, I changed. And guess what? Uh, pretty much every team now leaves at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock in the evening, because it works. Mm. So that's the innovation. What do you think about... Um, Nims dying. Think for yourself. Think independently and think uh, laterally. Think like a special forces soldier. What what would you do that's different? That could be different. That could be better. Okay, and that is what we're talking about with small kind of alpine style teams, right? Because if we're thinking about, um, so room clearance, for example, the 
the strategy there is the bloke at front is at the front is the bloke in charge and that's very different from hq back telling this is what you do and and setting up the strategy but the bloke in front is the guy leading regardless of rank and that sounds very yeah, similar very, to i would disagree with that okay uh, gone I, I would never have uh, your point man as as the team leader okay team okay leader, even in team leader's got to be uh, overseeing the whole operator. He can't be the person, he or she can't be the person that opens and door, blows the doors off its hinges. No, that's okay. the, the leader in a team of four, say, is, is three back, two back, three back. Okay, okay. Sure. So how does that translate to your leadership on a mountain, that kind of approach? Well, I think it's similar. You, what you have to do is is uh, take a little bit of a step back, uh, the holistic helicopter view, you can't be you can't be doing all the ten pegs yourself and and have your team, uh, you know, milling about having a smoke. Do you, do you mm -hmm. see what I mean? Okay. You, you've got to be thinking about strategy. You've got to be thinking about your you know, the welfare of your 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 boys or your girls, um, and you've got to be thinking about those what if scenarios so that you're prepared uh, when things happen and things invariably do happen. Um, if you're busy tying tying ropes and yes you've got to have your shit together and and and, and be personally responsible and uh, on time and and with the right kit at the right place etc but from a leadership perspective very important to to have that overseeing not be the point man as you as you suggested there okay yeah that's i was kind of coming from a different angle uh in terms of the person who has the best perspective is the person who makes the decision about how to execute the task in the like in the in the very small confines they have. So, for yeah. example, how to clear that room in front. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's so, not a specific. Uh, I don't know if everybody yeah. in your audience has a military <laughs> background, but probably not. Um, no. But what I would say, uh, you know, in in tandem with that is that you know if you're if you're the the, the team leader in a smallish team. Uh, one of the things I learned in special yeah. forces and and indeed in the Marines was that um, if you're open, if you if you uh, even if you do know all of the answers, so to speak, it's really important to engage your your people, your team, and and get them involved, get them engaged, and most importantly, and crucially, ask them uh, if if they approve of the plan. Not not least of which, ask them if they've got any ideas to improve your plan or the plan. And invariably, I've found is that, you know, when you're in a small group with uh, even the, the most junior person in the team, they can often come up with the, the critical piece of information or the idea that sparks a brilliant uh, concept, an idea or a way forward. Uh, so always ask uh, for, for, for advice and uh, ideas and thoughts from the team. Don't always assume that you have the right answers. So what are you looking for in the team then? Because obviously that's you can select the right people to begin with who will provide better answers. Like what do you look for when you're building a team for something like this? Uh, something like an expedition, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of looking for uh, people with the kind of relevant skills, um, some experience, but not necessarily uh, all the experience. I think you can, you can gain experience during. Uh, so for me, it's pretty pretty clear that it's your the attitude that is important it's your behaviors it's your uh, personality and it's your attitude that's critical to success of a of a difficult mission expedition or uh, goal have you had time to think about what it is about attitude that makes it beneficial to a mountain environment 
Yeah, I mean, I have uh, I have some characteristics and traits uh, of what I call uh, an adventurous mindset, and uh, I could share those with you if you like. That would be fantastic. So they so they are first of all curiosity. Um, I think one has to be uh, you know curious in life and uh, curious as to what uh, it might be like at the top of the mountain or curious over the horizon. Curiosity uh, is really important. Then um, a little bit of courage to, to, to follow, uh, follow that. You know, it's often then required to take some, some form of action. And, and it does require a little bit of bravery and courage. So um, the first two characteristics of six are uh, curiosity and courage. The next two are about um, application. So it's uh, applying yourself with energy and enthusiasm. So two C's followed by two E's. And then it's not an acrostic word, by the way. Um, <laughs> but the next two are two R's. And for me, uh, the follow up is uh, resourcefulness, kind of that's coming back to how you overcome obstacles, roadblocks, uh, difficulties, um, backs against the wall type stuff. How how can you uh, adapt to the, the situation and overcome? Um, so resourcefulness. And then finally, resilience. And that is obviously the old uh, Shackleton-esque uh, characteristic of, you know, just bloody mindset, uh, overcoming, um, staying staying true and finding, finding ways and um, beating off the you know, the, the difficulties, the problems, the red tape, the bureaucracy, hmm. uh, all the physical challenges like earthquakes, avalanches, death, destruction, so forth. That's really interesting, that list of, of character, because when I, so I, I spend my, my day job is teaching people that I call adventurepreneurs, so entrepreneurs who like doing cool shit in their free time, hmm. to perform at a higher level. And the combination of the two, or so there's two sides of character that I see. One of them is this, the archetypically masculine, so resilience, grit, determination, aggression, all very important skills. But those are almost what people exclusively focus on to a point where it, it becomes a limitation where they need to build in the patience is archetypically feminine, patience, wisdom, creativity, um, resourcefulness, and that more flexible creative um and kind of spontaneous aspect character yeah I, I couldn't agree more where did you learn the or was there a point where you had to learn okay that flexible side is more important was there a, a story or a point in your life where you realized okay there's a limitate a limitation in the way that i'm applying things I don't think it was a, a defining moment. It's just, uh, you know, when you end up um, at my age with my grey hair and all the experiences that I've I've had, um, you know, it's just a slow process of, of maturing of, of uh, you know, not not just in body, but in, in mind and just, you know, realising that, um, you know, some some other things other than what you might think of uh, at an earlier, more dynamic age, uh, are the critical ingredients, and I don't think they are. Uh, they are more of the soft skills than the hard skills. Yeah. What expeditions stand out to you? And out of everything you've done, what are the ones that you're really proud of? 
Uh, there's there's a few, but um, we haven't got all day. I, I would probably pick um, of of about fifty that I've organised and and led around the world on seven continents by land, sea, and air, called Adventureholic. That's my book. Little plug there. <laughs> but the uh, flying car expedition probably for me was one of the most uh, uh, yeah, daring, exciting, and unusual uh, expeditions. That's the one that really stands out to me as well. And when yeah. I was scrolling through your website, doing my research on you, that one really popped out. So look, tell, tell me about that. Where did the idea for that come from? So yeah, look, a, a definition of adventure is um, for me uh, a, a journey of discovery um, with unusual, exciting, or daring experiences. So, um, the flying car project was was something that evolved from another flying project on Everest, actually, with with Bear Grylls. We were uh, attempting the world's highest paramotor flight over Everest, and in the tent uh, after that successful project, the engineer, a chap called Giles Cardozo, uh, boy genius engineer. Uh, literally said across a, a glass of uh, or a mug of champagne at the time in our yellow tent, uh, 16,000 feet up uh, the mountain. He said, I think, Neil, uh, I can realise my boyhood dream of uh, building a successful flying car with the experience I've now got of designing engines to fly above Everest, uh, you know, four, four stroke engine or whatever. Um, I know nothing about engineering. I don't even know where the spark plug is, but I believed uh, Gilo and uh, I found myself very excited as a as a pilot. Uh, you know, got a few a few experiences uh, flying different contraptions, um, helicopters and, and fixed wing and parachutes and so forth. And um, it's, a, you know, it's another hobby passion. And I found myself reaching across the tent. Uh, after asking asking what the uh, cost to make a prototype, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Gilo Gilo gave me an eye wateringly large uh, sum, uh, literally six figures, and um, for some reason it didn't put me off. I, I reached across, shook his hand, and said, "I'll be your customer." So I was then committed, um, and then I literally had to find a way to fund that uh, prototype flying car that he was going to build it was going to be the world's first road legal flying car i realized i had to do an amazing journey uh in itself an expedition to uh, attract sponsorship to help pay for it um that of course then added another hundred and fifty thousand pounds to the to the bill my commitment to uh to the project and and from that moment on it was just a race to to get this thing built uh, to test it um, Pendine Sands in Wales was the first uh, first launch and, and flight in the flying car. And then concurrently, I had organised uh, a 10,000 kilometre expeditionary journey from London to Timbuktu, which, of course, involved uh, various challenges, including a couple of stretches of uh, sea, um, most notably the Straits of Gibraltar, which I was the first to uh, eventually, uh, after a few dramatic moments, um, pilot uh, a car across uh, a shipping lane. And then we uh, we did an overland and, and flying journey across the Sahara Desert, which had never been done before. Uh, a 46 day mission, uh, you know, 10,000 kilometer journey that was truly spectacular in, it, in its scope and its uh, outlook and projection and, uh, you know, challenge and, and difficulty and included some incredible, uh, difficult, tough leadership challenges, incidentally, as well as 
incidentally being the chief pilot. So I had uh, quite a lot on my plate, but it was successful. Uh, fantastic mission, a real privilege to lead uh, people in, in those sorts of uh, challenging environments um, with something that's, that was really pretty iconic and, and a little bit different and, and uh, dangerous. Yeah, there's a video. The only video I've seen of it is, was it you who crashed the, into a tree? Well, funny enough, that was Gilo. Um, oh, was it Gilo? He yeah, was allowed to. Uh, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I had my fair share of crashes, but thankfully <laughs> nobody was filming them at the time. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we had, we, it had definitely the, the whole project had its moments. I mean, I, I crash landed into, uh, in, in, into uh, the sea at Tarifa, I very nearly had a, a complete oh dear me uh, over the Straits of Gibraltar on the second attempt, and then um, had a crash landing at uh, Suta Airport helicopter he- airport in North Africa and uh, got arrested and all the rest of it. It's uh, you can read all about it in the book, but um, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was an incredible uh, trip, expedition, um, and, and journey of discovery. Sounds fantastic. Where does business come into all of this? Oh, definitely a second, you know, second uh, uh, tier of, of, of life. Uh, for me, I think, you know, this is called the Freedom Podcast, I, I believe. Um, freedom Project, yeah. Yeah, the Freedom Project. For me, you know, for me, uh, life is, is, is about finding your, uh, f- finding your path and, and doing the best you can, um, you know, having some fun, coping with some challenges that are thrown at you. And, you know, pushing, pushing the, the boundaries of, of your experiences and then finally giving back. And, um, you know, for me, uh, doing all these things is just a means to an end. Um, business, not really my passion, not, not my forte. One has to do it in order to pay the mortgage and pay the bills and to, to get that freedom. You need a little bit of money in this, uh, you know, certainly in, in UK and uh, well, anywhere really in the world. Uh, so, yeah, business for me is just about uh, putting some money in the bank and, and not an awful lot more. Okay, so it serves the purpose of who you want to be at a, a deeper level. Sure. Fantastic. And did I see that it's that's that's why I noted the kind of apparent disconnect between the world of adventure and flying cars and special forces. And then is it commercial interiors and office furniture? Is that still the world you're in? Uh, no, I, I built a company in that arena, um, okay. but uh, we reached a, a critical juncture and um, kind of slightly uh, famously, my business partner and I flicked a coin as to whether we should take it from about 30, 40 million turnover to 100 and, and never to have to work again or uh, sell the company at that moment in uh, it was back 2010-11. And um, the coin went to my business partner's side, who was keen to to sell up there and then. And um, so I didn't have that journey to 100 million, but, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a means to an end. And, uh, you know, in itself, it was a, a reasonably successful uh, outcome. Why did you lean more towards the... So it was, it was your business partner who was saying, I want to sell up now. And were yeah. you on the other side of, okay, let's build it to 100. Yeah. Why did you... Why were you on that side? Uh, because um, by that stage, I could see, you know, we'd spent a good few years building the business to to the success that it had got to. And, you know, we'd, we'd learned a huge, huge amount. And I reckoned that we could quarter the time uh, to 
build and uh, you know increase the size of the business um, four times quickly after all of, of that first 10 years experience. And so uh, it was a much shorter runway, I, I believe, to, to get to 100 million than to get to 30 or 40. And so uh, for me, it was just a, um, you know, one of those decisions, do, do you do another three or four years, five years maybe, uh, and then really never have to work again once you've once you've sold out at 100 million, you don't you don't need to work again. Or uh, do you sell out now, cash your chips in, as my business partner would say, um, and yeah, be reasonably comfortable, but not quite enough to completely retire from having to make money. So yeah. What of kind of decisions. what kind of person do you have to be to get a business to 30 or 40 million? I think you have to have a good strategy, you have to have good determination and you need good people to help you get there. Couldn't couldn't possibly have done it on my own. Um in fact they probably would have done it without me um quicker. <laughs> but Sounds like that Vista acronym again. Yeah. No, I just I just think you 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 know we had a good partnership. I had, um, I mean, I started the business and then I, I needed uh, somebody knew what they were doing in our field of construction. So project management, construction, uh, building things in, in, uh, centered in London, but you know, uh, mm. clients around the UK mostly. And, you know, you can't, you know, that kind of industry, you can't, you can't completely bluff it. You can bluff a little bit, but you can't, you can't bluff building buildings. And so I needed a, a business partner with an engineering degree and all the rest of it. And I went out and found one, um, persuaded him to join me and we built a company together. And I think the combination of my slightly gung-ho, uh, winging it, um, determined uh, strat strategic thinking uh, aspect uh, complemented well with his, uh, you know, slightly uh, safer approach. Um, engine, you know, I think engineers generally do take a, a slightly more pragmatic, um, mm -hmm. uh, less dangerous approach to life. And it was just a really good combination of characters that helped us succeed, build a team, um, be successful, winning business and winning pitches in a com really competitive marketplace and uh, delivering... Um, you know appropriately and and moving on building the business the steve jobs and steve wozniak of commercial interiors and office furniture then the, the perfect the perfect partnership yeah it was I and mean, we had our moments um you know i i, I won't spoil the um the, the anyone who does read my book adventure holic there is a lovely story in there where um we go for a run and we end up uh, scrapping uh <laughs> on a bicycle path but uh you know we we trusted each other and actually at the end of the day um we respected each other and we had we had different uh, often di disagreed uh you know with that strategy um but the the trust was there the respect was there uh and in fact you know 10 12 years later um i'm still in touch we have no business connections whatsoever but we're still good friends we we saw each other last weekend and uh, uh had a couple of pints and um you know there's there's love, respect, and and um, trust always will be. So talk to me about the process of writing Adventure Holic. Yeah, I I needed a bit of a gap, and obviously, as as many people, there's millions of books written in COVID. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I started it kind of three years ago, just uh, realizing that uh, I had all these rich uh, adventurous stories and. 
Um, it's not so much a, a book about, um, you know, some of the stuff we talked about, military and uh, and growing up. It's purely all the fun, adventurous stories. So I just wanted to record them um, partly so, you know, other others could uh, kind of learn from uh, my mistakes, um, but to inspire the next generation of, of explorers and adventurers and scientists who, you know, to, to go out and and, you know, really discover uh, amazing things about our planet which uh, you know for, for yourself um, they may already be known by others but you know it's important I think to uh, take the ball between the horns and, and go for it and, uh, and explore and uh, discover and to learn and to share. And where can people find it? Oh it's all over the uh, Amazon, uh, Audible, uh, Kindle you know it's called Adventureholic um, Perfect. and anyone can find it if they work hard enough if they work hard enough okay so final thing that I'd like to wrap up with penny farthings is where we started where did that interest come to life well you know we talked earlier about the adventurous mindset if you if you remember the number one characteristic trait of an adventurous mindset is curiosity correct well done you've passed I was listening yeah well done so I was curious about this uh, weird uh, bicycle the, the Victorian bicycle with its large wheel small back wheel and I just thought um, you know slightly eccentric you know definitely that's definitely a little bit of me in there um, you know if you're riding a penny farthing with a top hat down um, Pall Mall or uh, the Mall in London you're going to get noticed and so it's not really for uh, the kind of shy retiring types it is for the somewhat more extrovert characters and um i just i just love the 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 idea of uh riding a penny farthing back in the day about 12 years ago i thought uh, two two thoughts one i wonder if i could uh, master it number two uh having played competitive bicycle polo back in my 20s in london uh, basically, two wheels, fixed wheel bike, short mallet, um, you know, kind of replaced rugby as a as a contact sport in the summer for me. Brilliant, brilliant sport. Um, but, you know, uh, one moves on. And uh, 10 years after retiring from bicycle polo, I my second thought when considering penny farthings uh, in an article in the Country Life magazine of all places, I thought, um, you know, can I can I teach myself to ride? Will I be able to do it? Curious. And two can you play penny farthing polo? And so I, I, yeah, those were the two, those were the two things that struck me. Um, I took the courage to, uh, to form a club, penny farthing club. And uh, I've been teaching novices, friends, um, people from Airbnb experiences to, uh, to ride the bike. And occasionally we get somebody who has the potential to wield a, a horse polo mallet. Uh, and to join me on the polo field once or twice a year and we stage international matches penny farthing polo games okay how many people are in that league or how many people are in the the kind of international penny farthing polo oh world? Uh, it's very elite and very exclusive <laughs> i mean yeah. there's probably no more than 50 people that play or have tried penny farthing polo on the planet but you know what you know who cares um <laughs> Only this week, I got an approach from uh, some penny farthing riders in the States who have heard heard of about our England v Scotland uh, annual uh, challenge match and want to take us on. So uh, watch out for 
GB versus USA penny farthing polo in the next couple of years. I need to watch out for that. I'm going to be paying very close attention to what happens in there. Out of interest, is it... You're quite tall, sat down in your chair there. You're probably perfect build um, uh, to come and have a... Give give it a go yourself and come back to your audience to explain uh, what a wonderful game penny farthing polo is. I will 100% give that a go now at any point. And is it more difficult to ride a penny farthing than a regular bike? Yeah, it is. It's slightly more uh, difficult, but... The actual contraption is is a very simple machine. It's got uh, fixed fixed gear, i.e. the pedals go round with the front wheel. Um, you steer it like a normal bike. You're just seven, eight feet up in the air. Um, so you just have to be a little bit more cautious over cobbled streets, uh, you know, slippery grates. Um, it's not quite as comfortable as a modern bike. Um, it's got, uh, sometimes it doesn't have brakes. It's got... Um, yeah, no suspension, no 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 gears, uh, and solid rubber tire. So you feel every uh, undulation in the tarmac and the road. But apart from that, it's fantastic fun. Get a great uh, vision over the top of hedges and into people's back gardens. And um, as I say, uh, as a little bit of an extrovert uh, and and British eccentric, it, it really uh, with a top hat on, riding down the mall. The, the, there is few things in life that are, are more fun. So to wrap up, people can find Adventureholic, Amazon, wherever they look in bookstops. Um, where else can people follow your work, whether that is your website, social media, where can they follow you? Apparently, I, I can be found on uh, the internet, uh, Neil Lawton. Um, if anyone feels compelled to uh, connect with me, I'm sure they'll find a way. I'm definitely on LinkedIn amongst other platforms. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Neil. Tom, it's great chatting to you. Thanks for uh, having me on your uh, Freedom Project podcast.